It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for uh, giving up some of your time for a discussion. I'll be, I'll be moderating things, um, but I hope this is an opportunity for the three of you to, to, to share your insights into this subject of climate change, climate crisis, and the role of faith and belief in, in this crisis. So, first of all, my name is Phil Champagne. I'm the director of the Faith and Belief Forum. Could we first of all just introduce ourselves? Um, I think it would be good to to, to just go around. Um, perhaps, uh, Maria, you could start? Uh, sure. Um, so my name is uh, Maria Elena Arana. Uh, I was born in uh, Mexico, in Chihuahua, where the little dogs come from. <laughs> as well as Pancho Villa, the revolutionary. Uh, grew up in the US, uh, outside of New York, and have been in London now, you know, well over 30 years. Um, I have been involved for a long time with social justice issues. I think I went on my first demonstration when I was about 13. Um, but uh, not so involved with issues around um, climate to start with, um, I mean, always happy to recycle, but not really doing loads more than that. Um, about, uh, I've been working now for CAFOD, the Catholic Agency for Overseas Development, about, uh, well, nearly 30 years. And about 10 or 12 years ago, we started campaigning very strongly on um, climate change because of the impact on the poorest people in the countries we work with. And I then got very involved networking with lots of other environmental um faith groups and other groups and so um, I suppose it's become much more a key area of my work and I coordinate something called the Live Simply Award which like kind of eco-church, eco-synagogue is faith groups kind of working on issues about making themselves more sustainable. Thank you so much Maria. Um, great to have you with us. Uh, Cameron. My name's Cameron Shazad. I'm born and bred Brummie from Birmingham. Uh, my own professional background is in international development and I've been doing that for almost 18 years now, um, since 2003. Um, and I suppose that's how I uh, got into environmentalism around seven years ago. Um, a lot of the places I was working in South Asia and Africa, I very quickly came to realize that lots of the work that we were doing and the intervention work and the development work needs to be related to the environment or the, the protection of the environment for, for our work to be successful. So I'll just give you an example. Um, you know, in one particular region, we were spending hundreds and thousands of pounds on water wells only for them to dry out after a few years. And when we research further, you know, um, there was deforestation taking place um, not far from there. So then, you know, then you start realizing actually to, to focus on the work we're doing, we need to focus on environmental issues. So that was my kind of calling and how I got involved in environmental issues and climate change issues. So that's where now I, I focus a lot more on my work. Thank you so much, Cameron. Uh, and finally, uh, Shulamit. Yeah, so I'm Shulamit Morris-Evans. Um, and um, I have not been professionally, I suppose, involved in climate change. After graduating, I spent three years as a, as a teacher. 
um, and I'm now um, living abroad. And I, last year, got involved with Extinction Rebellion and from that got involved with Extinction Rebellion Jews, sort of helped set up Extinction Rebellion Jews. So that's my main tie-in to this issue um, and, it, and it's been quite a, in some ways, quite a new um, experience for me to be quite as um, passionately involved with, the, with campaigning on climate change. Before, sort of just over a year ago, it was an issue that I cared very much about but I don't think I was um, panicking about it quite as much. And I think getting involved in Extinction Rebellion has, has made me feel um, how, quite how urgent things are. And, and that um, drove me to, to want to be acting on it um, with, with other people who also saw it through the, through the prism as their Judaism. Um, and I've also been a little bit in contact with um, uh, the people who are setting up um, a group called Shema which is um, sort of the nascent Jewish uh, climate change hub. And that in turn has links with things like eco synagogues, which has already been mentioned. Um, the, um, a campaign called uh, Small Islands, Big Challenges and, and various other um, Jewish uh, climate change initiatives. Great. Um, well, we've got some clearly some um, uh, a rich, rich experience around the table here. So, uh, really looking forward to to getting into some discussion. Obviously, um, Solomon, you mentioned the prism of Judaism. So, we're interested here in in exploring that kind of prism of faith and belief, and what that how that plays out in terms of your all your work on on climate change and the environment uh, and we'll come to that but perhaps as uh, before we sort of come more directly to that a question that i think is um is kind of, cons- of concern to everybody is despite the agreement that climate change is one of the biggest challenges of our time there seems to be growing frustration that change isn't going quick enough and some of this is or a lot of this is directed to decision makers. We all know that back in 2015, at the end of 2015, there was a, the Paris uh, Climate Agreement. 195 nations signed up to that. More recently, local authorities, you know, at a local government level, are signing up to uh, statements that say there is a climate emergency. I think more than half the local authorities in the UK say that there is a climate emergency. But despite these sort of government actions, there is a sense that I think that um, kind of progress is too slow. And interestingly, um, we're just at the point of an election where I'm sure you'll all be looking at what political parties are, are planning to do on this issue. So so really, you know, I'm interested to first of all get your your kind of take on that, on the nature of the challenge and the speed or lack of uh, amongst decision makers for this and what, what the problem is around that. Happy to just start off. Um, certainly we, we were really um, very involved with our kind of campaigning work toward, working towards net zero and pushing um, Theresa May and her government to actually put net zero into law, which she did do last June, just before she left. Um, I think it's really crucial it's i think we can also thank extinction rebellion for the last year of their really ramping up 
kind of the importance of climate change, and I think that's something that that we should recognise that that has been really helpful to bring it further, much further forward to the agenda of most people. Um, in this country. And the fact that over 60% of local authorities have now signed up to a climate emergency is brilliant news. It's only the very beginning because what, I mean, what does it mean? It just means that they think it's vaguely important. Um, but that is the starting off point. So for them to actually decide and work out how to actually take on board to work towards net zero themselves in their own local authority, looking at kind of energy usage, looking at transport, um, looking at, you know, sustainability of everything that they're involved with. Um, so, I mean, it's just the beginning, not the end. And it's something that's going to take a while. But the importance is that it's now or never. It's not something that we can just sit around and, and wait wait net zero won't just happen it needs to be actively worked on and this election needs to be not just about brexit it needs to be about climate change and for people to to vote and for people to decide who which is the party they think is going to do the most to actually get action taken urgently uh, does this give more more kind of um, legitimacy to uh, Extinction Rebellion and that sort of more direct activism, activism do you think, uh, Shulamit? Yeah, I think that um, if I had to... I think the issue of why uh, climate change doesn't uh, seem to garner the sort of urgent action that it is crying out for is a very complex one. And I think a lot of psychological factors are at play. But I think that one of the things that makes it difficult is the fact that our economic and political systems suffer from this kind of endemic short-termism. And I think that that, that to some degree is, is, is in evidence in, in, in this election. You know, <laughs> a lot of people are sitting there thinking, well, you know, yes, of course, climate change is important, but we're focusing on, on Brexit. There's this urgent crisis that we've got to focus on, you know, right now. And, um, and, and that happens election after election, that, that parties are focusing on getting into power for the next round and voters are focusing on, on the issues that seem to be most present. Um, and climate change, even if both politicians and voters might acknowledge uh, rationally to some degree that it's a, an extremely important issue, it, it gets shunted down the priorities list very easily. And I think it doesn't help that it is so big and so impersonal. I um, was very taken by uh, the way uh, David Wallace-Wells uh, sort of put this string of, of reasons as to why this crisis is so difficult to engage with. And, and I think there is a certain element of perhaps, you know, for many people, it's much easier to look away. And if you can look away, it, it's quite tempting to do so. Not, not perhaps on purpose, but I think to confront something so terrifying often it needs to be something that you, you can't avoid. Mm. And I sort of feel like that is what Extinction Rebellion is doing, is bringing people with, with kindness, with, you know, with, with care, but bringing people face to face with the stark reality of the situation in, a, in quite a, an, em, an emotional way. Mm. Um, not merely... Uh, trumpeting some of the facts, but in through the actions and through you know what the actions sort of result in, 
forcing people to engage with the fact that there is a crisis, that this is not something that we can avoid, that this is inevitably going to impinge on your life because it is that important. Mm. Um, so that's, that's sort of how I see just sort of some of, some of the issues and, and some of the ways that Extinction Rebellion sort of exists to try and tackle them. It's interesting that you, you uh, refer to it being a kind of big and impersonal, difficult, a sort of such a big issue uh, to grasp. Um, Cameron, I would have thought that, um, you know, in your work, some of the kind of direct impacts of climate change are much more present for people. I mean, you mentioned deforestation um, in terms of the kind of development work that you get involved in. Um, so perhaps just wondering whether you know, the perspective that Shulamit's given is from a kind of almost like a Western perspective that we can't see it. But yet in in a lot of other countries, uh, the effects of climate change must be kind of staring people in the face and affecting their lives um, daily. Yeah, not, uh, not just outside of a Western perspective, everywhere, even, sorry, even here in, in the Western world. Um, I think that there, there's huge lobbying power by the corporate sector and the fossil fuel uh, sector that have huge influence on governments and because the world is run on a major financial model quite often that's seen as the success rate and how we define success so it makes it it makes it difficult to you know tackle the challenges around climate change and I'll just give you an example um, around the, the riots in France for instance mm-hmm. uh, the yellow vest um, riots um, and, and that was down to France putting a tax on fuel as part of the Paris Agreement. And it was the poorest people that it hit the hardest. Um, so poor people will come out and rebel. Um, so if, if uh, politicians are going to make changes, they have to do it in a way that it's just and it's, it's equal for, for everybody. And that's where we all have to come together and, and work out how do we make changes in, I, I suppose in a fast way because we don't have too many years but also in a way that brings everyone along and, and, and there's some equality in, in how we bring uh, changes and a just transition so if we're talking about jobs if we're talking about other ways how do we do that so, so poor people ain't suffering the most No, if I, if I might be allowed to just jump in there and, and just you know, wholeheartedly express my agreement I think that that the the point that Cameron just articulated is why um, extinction rebellion's demand is for for climate justice, as it's called. That there is this you know very powerful acknowledgement in the movement um, that in order for in order for this in order for us to be able to pull off this feat, it has to be done fairly and equitably. Um, and I think that you know what's concerning the sort of impersonality of of, of climate change. I think that's very much what I was referring to there was the sort of scientific aspect of it, that, that when people think about simply climate change as the, 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 the fact of it, um, they, that can be seen as impersonal. But mm. I would absolutely agree. And I think, again, that um, Extinction Rebellion is very aware of the fact that the impacts of climate change are, are of course, deeply personal. So... Mm you know and, and affect real human beings in in terrible ways now um all over the world thank you uh, what 
it'd be interesting to discuss kind of having sketched that out a bit is uh, for all of you really how has your your faith and belief kind of played into your your kind of engagement with this issue so Maria back back to you and your your kind of 30 years um, of work in this area I mean how how has your faith kind of played into this and what do you see as a role of faith based organizations such as CAFOD? Um, well, I, I certainly think we have a lot to offer. Um, I mean, the, the great things, if you're actually talking about a, a political struggle that needs action to be taken um, at government level, which is something that, that we need. Obviously, we need to be impacting ourselves and, and small groups at local level, but we need national government to take action. Um, and, and people of faith are, are good citizens, um, and people of faith vote and I think politicians do recognize that. So when you have groups from churches, from mosques, from synagogues, you know, all tackling the issue, it's, it's recognized as it's, it's very much part of, of civil society and seen to be a, a, a key area. Um, my faith, I think, has really um, strengthened my resolve and determination uh, and about the importance of the issue. And again, recognizing that the poorest are struggling the most internationally and in this country, and they will struggle more um, because of the impacts and are already um, impacted by climate change in many country situations across the world. So I think it's, it really is, is down, down to us to be able to kind of be fighting for change um, and needing to kind of take that forward because it, we're called to by our faith. It's not just a decision we take one day. It's kind of who we are. It's part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. Cameron, is that, does that resonate with, with you? Um, and, and perhaps, I mean, it'd be good to hear a bit more about the eco-mosques. Eco um, yeah, I, I agree with everything uh, Maria says. Um, I mean, the, the science is very clear and quite often there's, you know, there's, a, there's a, the thought that science and religion uh, conflict with each other. And I don't necessarily think they do. And the science is very clear here. Nobody, climate change is happening. We've got to deal with it. So as people of faith, where do we fit into that? Um, I suppose it's our faith and moral values, um, you know, where we need to complement what science is saying and get people uh, mobilized. So faith connects with uh, our emotions and our personal lives. And so it's an excellent method of mobilizing people and in and also in addition to all the values and teachings um, I think it's fair to say that faith institutions throughout the whole world hold huge amounts of assets and they have mm -hmm. um, huge power to drive major change you know they control 50% of the uh, world schools mm -hmm. uh, financial institutions they own habitable land surface you know, they own churches, mosques, gurdwara, synagogues. Mm. So the way they do things, the way um, they use energy, water, food, they have the ability to educate uh, the masses. Mm. Um, and within our teachings, you know, we um, all our teachings in our faiths, they promote care for creation and the blessings that's provided um, as sustenance for mankind. You know, I would say 20 years ago, the faith groups had lost that moral 
ground for some reason. I'm not quite sure why, but since the Pope's encyclical, the uh, the various other declarations, Islamic declaration, Hindu declarations, faith groups now are very strongly coming up and reclaiming that lost ground. It's interesting that you mentioned the assets and so on of different kind of faith institutions, and and I suppose this also relates to. Um, sort of well all faith groups and and some would would kind of hold more assets than others perhaps but but is there something about um faith institutions getting their own house in order as well um in terms of being uh sort of carbon neutral uh and in terms of their own policies is that is that coming up within faith institutions um, if, if I could just mention a, a couple of things on that, um, I think that's certainly true. I think it, it's a great, it's an important opportunity for for um, faith um, institutions to be able to respond to that challenge. Um, we um, have been very um, proud of the fact that um, in uh, the Catholic Church in England, Wales, twenty twenty out of the twenty two. Um, uh, English and Welsh diocese um, have all switched to, and it, it just happens that all of the uh, energy usage for all the churches are kind of bought together. Um, so 20 out of the 22 dioceses um, are all now on a renewable tariff. So that mm. represents um, over 3,000 church buildings, um, mm. which we, you know, we're very pleased to see and mm. looking forward to the day when we can say all of them are. We're still waiting for change in contracts for the other two. So that is one one way. Um, the eco-church, eco-synagogue, eco-mosque um, in the the Catholic Church, we, we actually have a different name. We call it the Live Simply Award, which is based on Live Simply principles, which are living more simply, living more sustainably, and living um, in solidarity with poor communities. Um, and, I mean, it's it's still not um, massive, but we're very pleased. We've got over 250 um, churches and um, Catholic schools who've signed up to the scheme. Um, over 100 have now formally registered, which means that they're actively working on the award. Oh, nearly 70 have the award. Um, and of course, once they have it, you know, the Live Simply journey never ends and they need to keep it up. Um, so it means that they're actually are looking at um, how um, physically, whether it's kind of making a wild garden or an allotment if they have land, or it's kind of raising awareness about the issues, or it's studying, you know, the theological foundations of care for creation. Um, it's at all kinds of levels where they're actually taking forward the kind of messages of living more simply, kind of countering kind of consumerism that, you know, can mm. can ravage communities, um, as well as being more sustainable and being more in solidarity with poor communities. That sounds a, a great initiative uh, uh, to Live More Simply uh, Awards. Um, Shulamit, in terms of Judaism and your own your own faith. How has that played out for you and and particularly Extinction Rebellion Jews? I mean, what what what's that about? Yeah, so I think that for me, um, my ethical life, as it were, and my Jewish life go hand in hand. They're sort of in, inextricable uh, for me. Um, and I think that combined with that, there is this very interesting um, 
I don't know how to sort of put it, but perhaps, you know, sort of um, spiritual receptiveness in, in Extinction Rebellion that I went to the Declaration of Rebellion um, uh, back um, at the end of October last year and immediately noticed that this was sort of had this aspect to it in a way that I hadn't really encountered um, in other campaigns or marches or rallies and noticed that there were um, sort of Buddhists coming up and speaking and, and um, monks coming up and speaking and all sorts of people representing different faith groups coming and, and sharing something. And of course, I felt very much that I also wanted my faith group to be, to be represented um, and I remember sort of, you know, being being able to share to share a song with everyone and, and feeling really um, happy that that here we all were um, showing how this issue was bringing different faiths together to join hands and show how their own faith perspectives drove them to 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 work together on the, on this issue. So I think that that was sort of became the impetus for Extinction Rebellion Jews, really. Um, mm. That as Extinction Rebellion itself was growing and as there were more um, of these sorts of groups forming, so, you know, um, well, Christian Climate Action is sort of, and uh, Extinction Rebellion Muslims and Extinction Rebellion Buddhists. And um, so we, we too were also wanting to, to be a part of that. And I mean, I think that there's a lot, in Jewish ethics that, that speaks to me um, in terms of the climate crisis, uh, you know, in my Jewish upbringing, I frequently heard things like justice, justice, you shall pursue. That's, that's often repeated, but also things like um, the injunction to, to sort of serve and protect the earth that comes in Genesis that's, that's often quoted to people or there's mm. um, uh, this idea of do, do not destroy. And I think something else that's been um, particularly sort of uh, poignant in a way for me is that Jewish social action is often sort of referred to as tikkun olam, which is which literally means sort of healing the world, and that's often used quite quite generally for all sorts of social action projects. And I think that being involved in the climate crisis really brings it home that that is what's needed in a very literal way right now. Um, and to be able to participate in Extinction Rebellion protests under a banner that says, you know, Extinction Rebellion Jews here for the most urgent act of Tikkun Olam, um, with, you know, with, with all of these other Jews who also understood it as such, um, I think that was, that, that's been very empowering. And I think that the, the faith aspect of, um, of Extinction Rebellion is powerful for a lot of the reasons that um, that Cameron outlined, um, that I think that it brings that that moral aspect to the fore and that emotional aspect to the fore, and that it is a very powerful tool. I think I would just add um, for well, as as we're sort of doing here, for for bringing communities together, um, and that's I think what I love most about it. That being part of Extinction Rebellion Jews enabled us to then be part of what was sort of known as the, the, the faith bridge over the last Extinction Rebellion. Mm. So to be able to participate with other faith groups um, in, in the rebellion in a meaningful way. Yeah, some, some of our staff were on that faith bridge. Um, so it was, it, was, it was good to see that. Um, 
So we've sort of covered the the kind of scale of the challenge, the, a bit of the role of um, how how you bring your faith to this. Maybe the last bit of this discussion, perhaps we could look at, at what you see as the, the key changes that need to take place now. I mean, looking ahead, people are a lot of, um, there's a lot of mention of 2030 as a, as a kind of target for, uh, for being carbon neutral or the, and so on. So, so there's clearly sort of rhetoric about change. We know that there's a lot of talk about energy efficiency. I think we've touched already on um, some of the kind of uh, challenges for faith institutions and switching to renewable uh, energy sources. But from your point of view, uh, and from, from each of you where you're sitting, you know, raising awareness is fine. Um, bringing attention to the issue is fine. But what are the changes that need to take place, do you think? What are the concrete changes that you'd like to see over the next, uh, you know, maybe 10 years? Where are you focusing your, your attention in that sense? We're coming up for a really important year in 2020 um, in terms of kind of the, US, the UK really kind of stepping up to the challenge because it's all it, it's wonderful to say that um, that in 2015 the Paris Agreement got 195 countries but most countries I think all countries are not on course with what they agreed in Paris and we're looking mm-hmm. at the moment to, to, to not get where we need to do in order to keep to 1.5 degrees mm-hmm. um, so things are really need to be happening and they need to be happening very soon um, and for us I think we have this opportunity with the COP meetings, the the UN climate meetings coming the end of next year to Glasgow for the UK leading that process. Um, It's the ideal time to actually put pressure on government to really step up and to show the world that they can be a climate leader and that they can take things forward. Really, they need to be kind of laying out plans and really spending money to actually move the green agenda, work towards kind of new green jobs, all of that needs to start now. From the beginning of January, we need to be seeing that whichever new government we have, that they're really taking on board that issue. And it's a really good opportunity for people to be putting pressure on them to take action and to commit to take action before they're actually leading the world as part of the Glasgow Summit. So just to push you a bit more, Maria, in terms of mm-hmm. what what you would like to see people kind of demanding, and, and you, you mentioned new green jobs. I mean, is the focus, is your focus mostly on the economy, therefore? Um, and I'm thinking of issues like, you know, a lot of people are talking about shifting to a, a carbon neutral economy, to to shift to a circular economy. Somebody, are t- some people are talking about, um, I mean, these are these are ideas that, that that kind of have implications for how we work, how we do business. But but maybe in terms of these new green jobs, what what does that mean more? You mentioned green jobs. What? Well, yes, I mean, green jobs is 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 one of the ways that we get there. I mean, going carbon neutral, which is what we have to do, and what we have to put 
building blocks in place to get to because we won't, it won't just happen overnight. It will actually take a lot of energy at every lev level of government. So, I mean, this morning it was great to hear the mayor of Manchester talking about all that mm. they're doing to kind of make Manchester, um, you know, looking at all the key areas, including green jobs. Mm. Um, but really, I mean, it comes down to things, you know, it could be quite unsexy you know it, we could be talking about kind of insulation because we have a huge amount of housing stock which isn't very bad um i mean thinking of my my own house as well but that is in need of of change mm. um and it takes it takes government to legislate those changes mm -hmm. and to actually be changing the way that we work and it also needs to be pressurizing the big fossil fuel companies to actually change the way they work as well. So it's putting pressure in government and on business to be actually taking forward the climate agenda. Mm. Um, and that includes transforming the way we do do industry. Thanks a lot. Uh, Cameron, uh, what changes do you want to see? Yeah, I, <clears throat> I just want to share some thoughts. I've got skepticism and optimism you, in, in the beginning, uh, you, you spoke about the um, climate emergencies uh, mm. that have been declared around various councils, which, yeah. which is a great thing. It's raining, uh, raising awareness. But that's where my skepticism is. I mean, how, how do we define an emergency? So an emergency will be defined as a serious, unexpected and often dangerous situation requiring an immediate action. Now, are we seeing immediate action from our politicians? Because I, I think we're in danger of keep calling something an emergency and not acting on it. And then it's like the boy who cried wolf. Um, mm. So whilst, whilst the government has given 2050 as a date, um, and look, at Birmingham City Council and other councils have given more ambition, ambitious targets around 2030. Mm. Um, and I just, I just hope that they realize that there's huge amounts of change that needs to happen within 10 years to our infrastructure. That includes in housing, that includes energy, that includes transport. And so is there a political will? Is there a will from people to accept that change? Uh, so um, it comes back to what we said in the beginning, we've got to do that in a very, in a very just way. Um, so do you think and, there's and more, I, do you think there's more realism at a local authority level than, than a national national government level? Let's see. Um, I mean, I know what the councils are starting to do are creating task force. So they're not just doing it on their own. They are bringing people on board to have a say on how we do that. But quite often you, you, you get those people involved who have an interest in this, not those who don't have an interest in this. So you then end up not having the views who are affected. So that's some of the challenges and I hope we get that right. But my optimism is that I'm seeing people like the faith groups and especially young people who are involved globally and and nationally who who are rising to the challenge, you know, and, and there's huge hope that our young people um, will have a huge say in, in how their futures is shaped. When we're talking about the changes that we need to see, you know, that is the daunting bit. It is really, really big. And it is, you know, I'm certainly not qualified to to delineate uh, an 100% accurate vision of exactly exactly what needs to happen. But I think that the broad contours are pretty evident and have already been touched on. 
we need to be we need to stop burning fossil fuels i mean that's sort of Mm. the sine qua non you know we, we really and and so the fossil fuel companies and and, and all of the, the industries that re- rely on fossil fuels most heavily um we need to be finding a way to replace that with renewable forms of energy so not just creating renewable forms of energy but ensuring that that replaces fossil fuels um and so that applies to transport um which is obviously going to be challenging um equally as has already been said we need to cut out waste in the system um, we need to be um, we need to be tackling the kind of this sort of very wasteful consumerism that that, that a lot of our uh, industry is is based around. Um, we need to potentially be looking at aviation and things. Um, and I think we really, really, really need to be investing hugely in things like planting trees. I mean, there's a lot of talk about you know carbon capture technology, and uh, you know that that sort of to some extent already exists in the form of trees and, and and that brings other benefits as well because we're not just we're not just looking at the it, it's the climate and ecological crisis I mean there's this massive terrifying collapse in biodiversity that's also a real threat and that comes in part from things like pollution and deforestation so I think um, you know I would I would hope to see some of those political shifts that understanding that you know the, the, the change to sustainability needs to be done sustainably and I think that you know, that there needs to be these big shifts in energy production, um, in agriculture, in transport, um, and and this massive, massive drive towards towards reforestation and things. Mm. Thanks, Shana. But that, that's a real kind of call for uh, urgency, which I think you've all been emphasising. In terms of kind of civil society um, and the broad coalitions that are needed um, in civil society, and... Are, are you just maybe some final comments on on whether there's anything that you'd like to say about uh, about either the need for coalitions or or what coalitions you'd like to see or whether you think they uh, they seem to be going in the right direction um, because I think we you know it's clear that there are different we may we may agree on the kind of broad picture of climate change. Um, but I think there may be differences of how we go about bringing about that change. So do you see maybe some final reflections on, in terms of those civil society coalitions, um, any final comments on on that and particularly on the role of faith groups in those coalitions? Speaking from a very personal point, um, th- this more goes back to, to whether different faith groups sort of are wanting different things. And my impression is is no, really. That that so far, and, and you know, this to a certain extent is because I've been involved within Extinction Rebellion, which where people do sort of want the same thing. But I I've I've certainly felt more unity of purpose than, than anything else. And of course there are going to be different ways of going about things and different suggestions. Um, but I but I certainly hope that as far as coalitions go, um, you know, people people are all people all want the same thing, and people are all going to try and work together and, and learn from each other, and you know, make sure that they're that they're helping each other as much as they can in order to in order to achieve um, the solutions that are necessary. S- sorry, I, I just want to uh, from from a from a Muslim perspective. See, I've I've grown up in Birmingham in a mainly Muslim community. And um, I mean, there is there, there is unity of purpose, and people are coming together. 
And there's different ways of creating coalitions. There's no one perfect way of doing it the correct way. Um, so I think whatever works well for for whoever's involved. I mean, um, the majority of my work is within grassroots uh, communities. I, I don't get overly involved in campaigning and advocacy on a national level. But I, I just find as a Muslim, I'm probably more influential in a Muslim community than I am in an interfaith community or in a Christian community or in a Jewish community. So me personally, I focus all my, the majority of my efforts within the mosque or, or my local area because I know I have an audience. Um, and uh, if I talk to them in language that works for them, I can have more of a more influence and then capacity build them so that when there is joint unified work, they've, they, they know exactly what needs to be done. So there's different levels of creating coalitions. It doesn't just have to be different faiths coming together. It can be different communities, different neighbors. It can be all sorts. So uh, there's no, uh, no um, one glove fits all. Thank you, Cameron. I, I would absolutely agree with Cameron. I think we, we have, where we have the, the strength and the, the kind of potential for really kind of getting involvement in the issue, it's in our own faith communities. So I would say, you know, it's the, it's, it's the Catholic community in, in England and Wales where, where we're very, very actively working. That said, we were founder members of the Climate Coalition, which is over a hundred organizations. Um, fully a third of the members of that kind of movement is is made up of, of faith groups. Mm. Um, so, you know, there is a strong faith involvement, but I think we agree kind of where we're going in a particular year, the area that we're going to be involved with, and we work together. Um, and at interfaith level, um, I mean, Cameron and I are both uh, very involved. I'm on the steering committee of Faith for the Climate, which is a group, uh, an interfaith group of, of, of churches and other faiths who are actively, um, keenly um, passionate about taking action to tackle climate change in the UK. So we're trying to see what we can do together, but, you know, using the strength of, of our own communities to actually, you know, move forward on the issue. Um, I'd just like to finish in terms of thinking of kind of the future. Um, I came across this morning a quote from Martin Luther King, um, and he said, even if I knew tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree today. <laughs> That's a lovely uh, quote to, to end on. Uh, Maria, thank you. And thank you to all three of you. Um, this has been a really informative discussion uh, for me, uh, and, and I'm sure those who listen to this podcast, you've kind of shed light on what is a huge and really critical issue, if not one of the issues of our, of our time. So thank you very much. And Best of luck to all of you in the work that you're doing, the really important uh, work that you're doing. And thank you, uh, Maria Elena Arana and Cameron Shazad and Shulamit Morris-Evans. Thank you so much for being part of this, uh, this podcast. Thank you. <laughs>